0: And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way.
1: Okay, so I, I wanna I want to do this morning a very familiar story about the wise men seeking Christ. And I wanna begin with two questions. I'll come back to those two questions at the end. And so the, the first question is um how many of you feel that you're ready for Christmas? Okay. Man, we had a few hands in the first service. It looks like zero this time. Okay. I have a second question. How many of you feel that you're ready for Christ? And those are two very different questions, right? Um, These two questions ought to be considered the same thing, but they're not. So masses of people everywhere are trying to get ready for Christmas, and that means shopping, uh, peppermint milkshakes, decorating, uh, office parties, white elephants, candy canes, re-gifting, beautifully lighted yards, Hallmark Christmas movies. Uh, Some love December because it's Christmas, and some hate December because it's Christmas. Uh, Some love December but hate January because the visa bill shows up, and they discover December got out of hand. (laughs) Okay, so one thing I love about the Bible is that it shows us how to reprioritize our life. This book has been reshaping, reforming my life. For 45 years, I became a Christian when I was 15, and the Bible began to help me reprioritize my life, still helps me that, I come back to it, so helpful to me, and I love that about God's Word, and I have a, I usually have a weekly plan, a daily plan, a monthly plan, annual plans, but not until I came to this book that I really have eternal plans, I just didn't have any. I didn't think about that. And this book has radically altered the way I plan my life. The coming of Jesus as a baby, the incarnation of God, began the most important stretch of world history, about a 33-year span of history that dates back to the time of Caesar Augustus. And that 33-year stretch of history has totally changed my world change the world, period, change your world. Some of you can relate to that. And I want to kind of take this into context for a moment. So beginning with, we're in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, right at the beginning of the connecting of the Old Testament to the New. And these come together like this. So Matthew is the gospel writer who ties together the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Matthew's book is the perfect presentation to satisfy the Jewish inquirer of whether Jesus is biblical or unbiblical. Like the Jews were trying to decide, is Jesus biblical? Is it unbiblical? And Jesus would ask questions like, wait, what are people saying? Do they understand? Or do they not make the connection? And Matthew was writing to a primarily Jewish audience to help the people of God understand this connection. The life and ministry of Jesus had to perfectly align with Old Testament prophecies and could not violate or break from the existing scriptures. So you see how important the book of Matthew is and how the story of Jesus is what ties the two testaments together. So one way to think of the Bible is to imagine that the world's greatest artists are painting a giant mural and each one comes along at a different time in history to paint a bit. So um, I think some people were confused after the early service and actually think I was, uh, was describing a mural that exists somewhere. It doesn't exist. This is in my mind. Okay, so this is a journey into my mind, which is a dangerous place for me to take you. However, I, I've listed four. I just went online and Googled some of the greatest artists in the world. And so there are no actual paintings out there either. Some people, someone came up to me and said, that is so cool how those great painters paint. I said, this is all makeup. This is make-believe. So you need to understand that. But ride with me on my journey. I tried to create something that might help you get a little bit of a glimpse of the narrative of the Bible. So, Michelangelo began the great work and he labored quite a while and painted a magnificent picture of the creation story that pictured perfectly how the world came into being and masterfully tied in the time of Moses and Joshua And the judges, and it was brilliant, and everyone praised God for his goodness. So Michelangelo begins, and he paints this part of the mural, the story. And it runs the first part of the narrative of the biblical story. A bit of time passed and along comes Leonardo da Vinci. And he painted from the time of the kings of Israel stunning scenes of David and Goliath and Zion, the city of God, rising up in Jerusalem with the throne of David and the breathtaking Temple of Solomon followed by the breathtaking, heartbreaking destruction of the temple and the Babylonian captivity and the centuries that followed. So Michelangelo paints the first uh, scene ties in the second scene with Leonardo da Vinci moving into the time of David and the kings and the biblical story, carrying out the story. So we have the two first um, parts of the canvas moving from Genesis all the way up to Malachi and ties this, paints this beautiful people. And people can look at the, this canvas and go, man, that's an incredible, incredible story. So more time passed. Several centuries elapsed until Mr. Rembrandt carefully placed his ladder upon the canvas and begins to paint the most important section of the entire mural. And somehow, with unparalleled skill, he perfectly guided his brush to cover the shortest, in terms of length of years, but most important scenes of the entire painting. And he perfectly guided his brush. No one noticed before, no one had ever noticed something so central and key had been missing. Like when people looked at the mural before, they thought it was beautiful and it was like a, a great story. But it wasn't until the picture of Jesus and that little section that was working on, that the whole story even began to make sense. And when Jesus came, it all began to make sense. No one noticed before how key this had been. But once Mr. Rembrandt painted in the birth of Emmanuel Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, son of God, did it all come together? And then a great silence came over all the observers. And then he painted in scenes of the life of Jesus with large crowds gathering and nature defying miracles followed by ghastly scenes of whipping and a grotesque, bloodied man nailed to a cross, and at this point, it just seemed that time stopped. it's like everything was beautiful, and then it seemed like the it' reached the pinnacle with the coming of Jesus, and the crowds loved him, and then he paints he starts in painting on the the death of Christ, and it just felt so out of place and it didn't reach the climactic moment that everything was building toward this moment and suddenly everyone watching just had a horrible feeling that this cannot be, this cannot be the end and at least it was the end at that moment, it felt like the end and so a weird feeling came and many people walked away turning away and they they wept and they were weeping and they were crying and tearing their clothing and kicking dust up from the ground. Many began to just walk away. It was too hard. It was too sad. It was too depressing. It had not gone so far. They were walking away. They had not gone so far. Some of them were still within reach and still within sound and suddenly The weeping turned to joy and shouting and joyful and gleeful laughter and thunderous cheering and shouts of Hosanna, Hallelujah, how can it be? He is risen, He is alive, Jesus is up from the grave and death is defeated and Christ is King and suddenly they saw the picture and it didn't end with Christ on the cross. It didn't end with Christ bleeding and that grotesque picture went into the tomb and came out and he was risen and they were celebrating. Many had walked away, never to return. They have missed, they missed the most glorious part. They only saw a man coming and a man dying, but those who remained and those who returned celebrated. And they began celebrating for a short while. And they looked at the entire mural. And for the first time, it fit together in a way they had never imagined. Never before could they have pieced it together like that. And never before had anyone seen the scenes as one long story leading to the risen king. But a weird feeling began to overtake many of them. Never before had the mural looked so complete and at the same time so uncomplete. It it didn't seem right. So Rembrandt and Da Vinci and Michelangelo had tied together a most remarkable and sensational painting, all agreeing to the glorious moment of Christ coming and rising from the dead. But they felt it wasn't finished. It didn't seem like that could be the final end. There had to be more. And suddenly. Claude Monet sets his studio at the far end of the canvas. There's one piece of canvas left. Three sections completely fulfilled, masterfully tied together. Individual stories now fit in this one grand story of redemption and glory and Christ and the Son of God and the incarnation and the resurrection and the crucifixion and everything was beautiful. Everyone wondered though, what could, what could the great artist Monet possibly paint to add to the perfect story of Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, Lamb of God. But as he painted in a picture in the upper room. He painted Pentecost and the Holy Spirit descending upon the believers of Jesus. And they spoke in tongues and were filled with the Spirit and had new power and new boldness overcame them. And they started at Jerusalem and they went out in all directions to Judea, Samaria, Antioch, on to Ephesus and Crete and Galatia and to the ends of the earth. And as they moved out to the far end, the very end of the canvas, Mr. Monet began to draw the most beautiful of all scenes. So beautiful and no one had predicted that or foreseen that. But once they saw it, it all began to come together like the whole canvas was now filled with the painting of the glory of the redemptive story with heavenly creatures On the far end, praising and worshiping God. And at the same time, horrible beast rising up out of the sea. There was a worship around the throne of God and the sea of glass and everything was moving towards a great and a horrible battle. A war of Armageddon where the whore of Babylon was struck down by a great rider upon a great white horse. And the saints of God everywhere shouted and praised as the Lamb who sat upon the throne of the eternal city defeated the great beast. And shortly the city of God, the eternal city of God with streets of gold began to come and lower and come upon the earth. And angels gathered as saints of God drank from the river of life and ate of the twelve kinds of fruit from the tree of life. And truly... Truly, they lived happily ever after. Not not like in the fairy tales that grasp for reality, but in the greatest and truest story ever told. To summarize the great story, it could be told from beginning to end. It could have, if the whole narrative had been described like it is in Genesis one one. Genesis one one. Just hints. It hints to the glory. In the beginning God created the heavens and the world. But Genesis 1.1 has so much more to be tied to it. So if we could just summarize the great story. It could go something like this. In the beginning God had plans for a great city. For a redeemed people to be with him and enter into his glory forever and ever. The wise men. That we read about in Matthew 10 came into the story and they're like one little, one little spot on the great mural. But they have a key spot and a great spot. The wise men enter into. The story shortly after the birth of Emmanuel, which means God with us, and Jesus, which means Savior, and Christ, which means the anointed of God, the, the anointed, the appointed, the chosen one. And those titles come together in one purpose, in inescapable glory, in a moment in history. And... In that instant, we can see you and I have the ability because we have the whole Bible, we have the whole mural, we have all the sections tied together and painted artistically. And it's a running story and we see it now as a whole. We are so blessed to live in this new covenant period that we live in. And we see the mural, but it takes a moment. It's worthy, sometimes when we're looking at it, to take a moment. Today, we're just, we're just stopping, one little stopping place in this great mural. And it's in Matthew 2, when wise men visit Bethlehem on that beautiful starry night. And Matthew, 1, Matthew 2, 1, it says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. In the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Emmanuel, Jesus was born. The days after Jesus was born, Emmanuel, Jesus was born. In keeping with Scripture, in Bethlehem, a small little town sitting about 2,000 feet upon a high ridge above sea level, just five miles, five to six miles south of Jerusalem is this little no town, nowhere out of the way seemingly insignificant Jesus was born in Bethlehem and after that the wise men came and on the way this happened in the days of Herod the Herod of this story is the very Herod we know of history as Herod the Great he's a real person this is real history the Bible's real history in real time and real places Herod Herod the Great was placed by Roman decree and Roman authority. Herod the non-Jew was given the title King of the Jews. And he was not Jewish, so most Jews resented his authority and his title. Like what business does this man have being called? It was an insult to most Jews. How is he called the King of the Jews? And he was something of a, not something, he was definitely a madman. He was out of his mind. He was crazy. He murdered his own wife. He murdered his children. And he murdered many relatives or anyone who he deemed to be a threat to his power. He literally killed them. His own family members. He was such an odd man. He was so murderous and crazy in this way. But he is known historically as one of the great builders of history. He was an amazing architect and builder and he built the temple complex and made the temple complex bigger and in many ways more uh, inspiring than even Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was more beautiful in its gold and its, many of its precious treasures. But Herod the Great came along and made it larger and magnificent in many ways. Herod, the builder of Masada... Caesarea by the sea where Paul was imprisoned in this beautiful structure that's still there and he built fortresses and cities, archaeological, many current archaeological sites in Jerusalem are the work of Herod the Great. He's a very well-known figure in history. And God placed him in the story. To make us know this is real history. He put real people in the Bible. And you can go and study them. It's because the Bible is not fairy tales. And then we meet the wise men in our story. And we meet the wise men in this, this little part of this little one little scene in the great mural of redemptive history. The wise men are of great interest. And some imagine that there were three of them. Some think they were kings. We don't really know for sure that. That's speculation. But we do know that they were magi from the east. The most accepted view is that they were wise men like counselors who might have been interested. More than likely were interested in astrology and religion and politics and like geopolitics. And they were interested in what was taking place. So the sudden appearance of a star... Whether it was a comet or supernova, it doesn't matter to me. People argue about that and it doesn't matter. What happens is that God, at His timing, in His place, put a star recognized somehow by these men as a sign of the birth of the Messiah... And the area of Babylon is a good candidate for their place of origin as the Jews, many remained in captivity in Babylon all the way dating to David's Daniel's day and they had been made their way to Babylon as a result of imprisonment and they were carried after Jerusalem had been destroyed and many Jews returned but many Jews remained and there were little synagogues of Jewish believers all over that part of the world. And in Jewish synagogues, there were worshipers of the one true God, and they had the scriptures. So somehow, these people from the east, very likely could have been Babylon, knew of the Jewish Messiah, had even heard some of the uh, prophecies about the coming Messiah, and somehow, they made a star appeared and they were able to recognize and identify that star with the purposes of God in the coming of the king of the Jews. And God laid it upon their hearts to prepare for a long journey that was dangerous. And they put together a caravan, no doubt of many people because they were wealthy men and they carried great wealth with them. And Traveling in those days was dangerous and there were many robbers along the way. And they make their way, even if they were intent on traveling as fast as possible, it would have taken them about 40 days, a minimum of 40 days. It might have taken them much longer if they traveled 20 miles a day with a caravan that involved camels and people walking and carrying goods and stopping and eating and camping and about to make the 800 miles from Babylon to Jerusalem, if that indeed was their starting place. And then verse 2 says that they came to Bethlehem and they asked a question. They had a question they wanted to know and they said, where Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? And king of the Jews, when Herod heard that term, it's like, I'm the king of the Jews. And when the Jews heard that term, they're thinking, well, the Messiah is the king of the Jews. Who are you talking about? And he says, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Born is in past tense. He's already been born. We saw his star, his star. We didn't say a star. We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. And they were so specific in their search and they were looking for he who has been born king of the Jews. And they raised even more speculation when they exclaimed, We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. If they had been a little group of shepherd boys, no one would have paid attention. But the fact is they were an impressive convoy with obvious wealth and a clear and determined desire to see the king of the Jews. This news quickly reached important and official ears. By the way, would it have made sense? What made them think that they ought to worship the king of the Jews? It is odd that they use this word. Perhaps they wanted to honor the king of the Jews, but it's translated worship. The king of the Jews. Prosconueo, it means to worship, to bow down, prostrate, to prostrate oneself. Among the Orientals, especially the Persians, it would mean to fall down on their knees and touch the ground with their forehead as an expression of profound reverence. And they wanted to express deep reverence and honor for baby Jesus whom they believed to be a king. No one else thought him to be a king. No one else thought it was a big deal. No one else saw what they saw. They traveled a long way. People probably thought they were nuts and crazy. No one even bothered to follow out their story. But they, men, wise men, came and knelt and put their heads to the ground to honor him. Their level of understanding was that this was no ordinary boy. I don't really know how much they knew. They just knew that they were on mission from God and they wanted to show homage and honor. And verse 3 says, when king the, Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him, everyone was troubled. Herod was always ready to eliminate potential threats to his power. And he was especially fearful of a Jewish candidate to the throne of Israel. And he knew there were prophecies of a future Messiah and that even the hope of a candidate could create a huge uproar. Even a rebellion that would be heard about in Rome could cause him his position. The Jews who were in power were also troubled and were protective over a threat to their grip over the Jewish nation. In Matthew 2 verse 4 says, Assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And it seems as if it was almost common knowledge that the Old Testament scriptures pointed to Bethlehem and the place of the Messiah would be born. As all the chief priests and the scribes knew the answer to the question almost as soon as it was asked. In Matthew 2, 5, they told him in Bethlehem, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet in Micah 5, 2, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. So the prophet Micah prophesied seven centuries, that 700 years earlier, that the coming Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And there are two main reasons I can think of the baby had to be born in Bethlehem. First, Bethlehem was the location where David had been born. And God had established the Davidic covenant that the future of Israel would belong to a final king who would descend from a direct lineage of David. And second, there had to be irrefutable proof that this baby was a direct descendant of David. And that proof came as a result of a worldly emperor named Caesar who had passed a decree To tax all the people in order to do so, he had to have a census. And that census required that everyone would go back to the home of their original family tree. And for Joseph and Mary, it was not in Nazareth, their hometown. There was a town that they belonged to prior to that, part of their family tree. They had to go all the way back to this little place of Bethlehem. Caesar had no idea what he was doing. Herod had no idea that he was playing a role in a much bigger drama. And to show you how crazy it is. As far as I know, I'd never thought of this before until studying these passages, But as far as I know, and if any of you know differently, please tell me. But as far as I know, the only two kings of Israel that are ever born in Bethlehem were Jesus and David. All the other kings were born in Jerusalem. Because when David became king, he, was, he moved to Jerusalem. And Solomon was born in Jerusalem. And Solomon's sons were born in Jerusalem. And Solomon and David's great sons and great, great grandsons. And all the descendants were kings and they lived in the palace. And the palace was in Jerusalem, so their kids were born in Jerusalem. As far as I know, only two were born in Bethlehem. The Messiah and the first David. The fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem is quite miraculous. The religious elites mocked Jesus being from Nazareth, and they didn't think much of his being born of Bethlehem. No one was looking out for people born in Bethlehem, and they totally missed the point. They all thought that powerful people were born in Jerusalem, into powerful families. But Jesus was born to be king and was born in Bethlehem, like David. In this way, Jesus is the second and true David. As, as a matter of fact, David wasn't the real David. David was the first David. Jesus was the second and true David. In Matthew 2 7, some Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent to them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Herod was a sneaky snake, he was a liar. He wanted to have a secret meeting because he had devious and deadly plans for this baby boy. He would eliminate this latest threat to his power. In verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen, it rose, went before them until it came to, the rest, to rest over the place where the child was. The wise men didn't delay, but ponder with me a moment. Why did they even go to Jerusalem in the first place? Like, why didn't they just cut a straight path to Bethlehem? Why did they need to stop? If the star had led them to Jerusalem, why didn't it just keep going and lead them to Bethlehem straight up? Well, if they followed the star to the exact location, to the very house, and didn't stop in Jerusalem, there must have been a reason why they had to stop in Jerusalem, and it's simple. Because if they did not stop in Jerusalem, then the Messiah billboard would not have been plugged in. Jesus had to be known and displayed and promoted in Jerusalem because Jerusalem was way bigger than Bethlehem and big things for the kingdom of God and the power of God and the work of God had to go through the right place and the right place was that if they go through Jerusalem then it's going to hit the radar much more powerfully and differently and effectively if they bypassed Jerusalem and went straight to Bethlehem. You see... This knowledge would have been unknown. But as it is, because they stopped in Jerusalem, which really wasn't a stop in order for them to meet Jesus, it was a stop in order for other people to hear what was happening. It created a big stir and it became well known part of history and Herod, an important historical figure, got involved and the scribes and the priests were put on alert and even participated in the event. And God wanted to mark this moment in time by making the news go right through Jerusalem and to be acknowledged. By Jewish and Roman authorities. Isn't it interesting that at the birth of Jesus. Jewish and Roman authorities are found collaborating. And isn't it interesting that it happens again at the death of Jesus. That Jewish and Roman authorities are found collaborating at the birth and at the death of Jesus. But not much in between. How sad but normal that worldly powers even of politics and religion, can join hands in opposition of the King of Kings and the Messiah. When they saw the star, verse 10, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And we need to pause here they saw that the star had stopped and they realized that they were about to see the king of the Jews and somehow they instinctively knew that what was about to take place. It says that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy before they had seen Jesus. They were there. They finally knew were about to walk through. Have you ever gone somewhere and you're about to walk through that door and you just know you're about to see the thing you've been looking for? Let's just say that grandma that... Uh, Your daughter has just had a baby and you're outside and you didn't get to go in and you're standing there outside the operating, outside the room and you're going to get to go in there and see the baby. And as you stand there, you're more excited because you know what you're getting ready to see. And that's the anticipation they had. They were so excited because they knew what they were about to see. And they were probably nervous with excitement. And the moment had arrived. Would it be a letdown or would it be better than expected? What was about to happen. How many people would be there to see the king? They did not know, but they were excited. It was the biggest moment in their entire lives. And verse 11 says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him immediately. Then opening their treasures, they offered gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So they went to the house, the very exact location where Jesus was staying. And some suggest that it was probably he was two years old. Some say maybe they had moved into their own home, but we don't know. That's speculation. There's nothing to tell us that kind of detail. Could have been the same house because most houses had stables where their animals were tied. So it could have been the same home. Jesus may or may not have been in a different spot. He may have been two. He might have been three months old. I don't know. But all we know is they understood the moment. And they bow down and worship Jesus. And that's what we need to do. Sometimes we're always asking for more details, more information. I will not believe until I get this information. Sometimes Jesus says, You have enough information, worship me. And that's what we find. So, what we do know is that they worship Jesus. And this is what they said they wanted to do. And this is what they actually did. They gave Jesus the welcome of a great king. And they bowed down to the ground before him as a great king, an important dignitary. It would have been hard for anyone in the little town of Bethlehem to overlook such a great and important looking entourage coming to such an obscure town and to pause at such a little house. Being warmed in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So God communicated to them with a dream. He had communicated to Joseph with a dream, to Zechariah with a vision and a dream, to Mary with dreams and visions. So I want to conclude, once you see the big picture, then all the little stories of God's brush, all the little strokes of God's brush have deep meaning and power, right? Once you see the big canvas and you see what God is up to, then whether you're reading in Genesis or Exodus or Leviticus, whether you're reading in Malachi or Zechariah or Hosea, whether you're reading in uh, one of the epistles or you're reading in the Revelation or you're reading in the Gospels, every stroke of the brush of God begins to have meaning when you see the big canvas laid out, when the artist has finally done his artwork. And that's what we have in the whole of the Bible. God communicates it's communicated with us. And now we have a response. I want you to consider a few people and how they responded. Consider how God included this short story in Matthew. The one book that especially focuses upon the Jewish audience. This story is not in the four Gospels. It's not in the three synoptics. It's in Matthew. And it's in the Jewish Gospel. And it tells me and reminds me how he loves the Jewish people. And longs for them to embrace his son. God goes to great lengths to reach his people. And beloved, he has gone to great lengths to reach you. Aren't you glad? Secondly, consider the miraculous details of this story. So many miraculous details. Wise men, likely from, pagan, uh, from a pagan nation, somehow came to believe in the ancient scriptures of the Jews. Very possibly from Babylon had informed and even evangel- been evangelized by God to participate in the great story. And God has always had a love for the nations. Even when he chose Israel to be the carriers of the Messiah, he always has loved the nations and calls people All people to worship and serve the one true king. And think about the stop in Jerusalem for a moment. Why the stop in Jerusalem? This important information and these vital details of the story would never have been remembered or so prominent without the stop in Jerusalem. God knows the best way how to advertise and promote his son's kingdom. These magi went to Jerusalem and were not at all ashamed to declare a most controversial thing, that they were looking for the king of the Jews. If we are bold in declaring our devotion to the king of the Jews, then we too will find ourselves in opposition from worldly powers. People don't like it when someone threatens what they consider important and what they treasure. News of Jesus always troubles people, but it is good news to those who truly seek for God. And what about the chief priests and scribes? It is shocking what some people know about God, even many who do religious work, even pastors and elders, deacons, ministry leaders, worship team leaders, those who make a living in religious work or make their name through some religious work. But they will not travel five measly miles to learn more about Jesus. It is amazing how much religion people can be content with and not genuinely seek God. People can sit in church and love learning religious things, but not ever fall in love with Jesus. These people knew so much about Jesus, but they wouldn't go five measly miles to come to know Him who was born King of the Jews. And people will sit in their church seats and study the Bible and go to Bible studies and sing praise songs and pretend, pretend to know God. But they won't go Five measly miles to make sure that they truly know and love the Lord. They will not go and bow to Jesus. They stay in their religious comfort zone. May that not be true of any of you, beloved. May you not be so close and yet so far to knowing and loving the Messiah. What about dreams and stars? God has a way of guiding, directing, leading, and counseling His people. Those who genuinely, desperately, and doggedly seek Jesus and the will of God will be shown the way. Can I tell you, people are always saying, how do you know the will of God? Well, you first have to know the God who wills. Okay, if you will set your heart to know the God who wills, then you will begin to learn the will of God. Those who genuinely, desperately, and doggedly seek Jesus will find Him. And God will use Scripture... But he will also use other things. He will use dreams or divine appointments. He will use circumstances. He will use trials and failures and success and closed doors and open doors. He will use forks in the road. He will use politics. He will use setbacks and victories. He will use wars, tornadoes, fires. He will use COVID, disease, all as a part of communicating and directing individuals and nations. If you will start listening, you will start hearing. You must begin by getting your head and your heart into the scripture. This is the primary means that he will use to give the most clear direction to his people. But if you will begin to study the word of God, you'll begin to better interpret the world of God. If you will begin to study his book, you'll begin to understand what he's doing in his world. If you will not read the scripture, then you will misread nature. If you refuse to take advantage of God's clearest guideline, God's clearest means of communication in the living word of God, then you will repeatedly misread God's providential dealings in the living world of God. So lastly, I want to encourage you. To study the big picture over and over and over again. Learn to know and appreciate the great canvas of God. See the mural of God's masters as they have pieced and painted such a great story. From the beginning, God was building the great city. From Genesis 1, it has been all about the city of God. It has always been about the kingdom of God. It has always been about the Lamb of God and Him who sits upon the throne of God. So I have one final request, one question. I want to go back to where I started and I want to ask you rather two questions. Are you now ready for Christmas? And are you ready for Christ? If you have the two in the right order, then there's no reason you cannot tie them together. If you are ready for Christ, then Christmas becomes a beautiful time for worship and a perfect opportunity to induce Introduce others to Him who was born King of the Jews. So, I hope you see the big canvas. And we made a little stop today in a little town called Bethlehem. Do you see now how it fits? Can you see the canvas of the glory of God? Genesis 1 could say, In the beginning... God had a plan to build a great city where His Son would be honored and the people would love Him and delight in Him forever. Do you want to be in that family? Do you understand the story? Then I'm calling upon you today, right here, right now, to receive Christ into your life and say, oh Lord God, I want to be a part. I, want to, I begin to understand the great canvas now. I see what you've been painting all along and I want to part And Jesus is most beautiful and glorious and wonderful. And so is the city that He is building. And I want to be there. And I want to delight in Him. And I want to eat from the tree of life. And I want to drink from the water of life. Does that resonate in your heart? If you're a Christian, then all praise to God. If you're not, then I plead with you. Come to Christ and say, Lord Jesus, I receive you into my heart today to be my Savior and my Deliverer. Let us pray. Father, I pray right here, right now, that if there's anyone that is prepared to seek Christ, then open your heart to Him right now and say, Lord Jesus, I believe in You. This could be the best Christmas you've ever had if it's the first Christmas that you fully understand why Jesus came. Receive Him into your heart. And my friend, fellow believer in Jesus Christ, let us praise God for the great canvas of redemptive history, for the things that you are doing and you've invited us to be a part. What good things await those who love God. We thank you, oh God. We don't even have words sufficient to describe the joy we feel. In your blessed and holy name, we praise you and lift up the name of Jesus. In this final song, we give glory to our God and King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.